guess who I am? I have no respect for justice. I maim without killing. I break hearts and ruin lives. I am cunning and malicious and gather strength with age. The more I am quoted, the more I am believed. I flourish at every level of society. My victims are helpless. They cannot protect themselves against me because I have no name and no face. To track me down is nearly impossible. The harder you try, the more elusive I become. I am nobody's friend. Once I tarnish a reputation, it is never the same. I topple governments and I ruin marriages. I ruin careers and cause sleepless nights, heartache and indigestion. I spawn suspicion and generate grief. I make innocent people cry in their pillows. And my name even hisses. Who am I? Originally, it was written gossip, or in today's case, slander. Today, our beloved writer James is not addressing the sin of gossip per se, which he has indirectly already touched on in chapters 1 and 2 when addressing how we bridle our tongues. No, rather, in today's text, James is directly confronting gossip's hissing cousin, the slithering sin of slander. And it meets all the criteria of the prose that I just read. Have you ever been the recipient of slanderous words? It wrecks you. It sickens you. It changes you. And it ruins churches. It's no surprise that James then simply blasts the sin without apology. Today, we may call it by other names, character assassination, clear, uh, smear tactics and campaigns, defamation of character. By definition, it is to make false and damaging statements about someone. However, as we will see, it may also involve the publishing, either by speech or otherwise, of something that may contain an element of truth but is twisted with the ill intent of harming someone's character and reputation in order to make yourself look good. But before we unpack what James has to say about this ongoing practice, I want to simply let the unadulterated word of God weigh in on the subject. So, I'd like you to perk up our ears, all of us, and him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Proverbs 10, 18, he who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. Exodus 20, verse 16, as you'll note, this is from the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Leviticus 19, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to stand or act against the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother or fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
I am the Lord. Note the proximity there of slander and love your neighbor, which we're going to find is similar to this text in James that we're going to look at. Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Proverbs 20, verse 19, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Proverbs chapter 26, I want to read a little bit of this. 26 is really quite instrumental. I happen happen to be reading some of this in my devotions this week, as a matter of fact. And it was uncanny how this fit in. Verse 17 of Proverbs 26. Like one who takes a dog by the ears. This is a great verse, by the way. I think I'll put this to memory. Like one who takes a dog by the ears is he who passes by and meddles with strife not belonging to him. In other words, don't stick your nose in somebody else's business. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death, so is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, was I not joking? Interesting. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer or slanderer, contention quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred covers itself with guile, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruins. A lot of stuff here. Proverbs 18.8. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. Same thing as I just read in Proverbs 26. And the New Testament is replete with passages that talk about it as well. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 28 through 31, talking about the depravity of man in the times when they completely go against God. And it calls them... That they were, it says that they are being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, hater of God, haters of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, talk about that in the end, the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. And on and on it goes. And then he finishes that off with, avoid such people as these. Ephesians 4, verses 29 to 32, which are familiar verses to you. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and clamor and malice and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, reminds people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, all people, to be ready to do whatever is good and to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2, a few verses here. Now that you have purified yourselves by being obedient to the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the hearts. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And then we come to James, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And here now is our text. Brief, concise, to the point, but not just to the point, to the heart. Because unlike some of James' previous verses that we've looked at, there is absolutely no difficulty in translating what James has written here. In fact, these two verses probably comprise two of the most straightforward, clear, and succinct statements in the book. They don't even require explanation, in my opinion. We can just simply read them and weep. And we ought to weep. Because although we have all likely been the sad recipient of someone's slanderous attacks, we also have more importantly likely been the perpetrator ourselves. James seems to imply that this sin, which we have all got a part in, it's a dirty little family sin. It's in-house. His address changes here, you will notice, from the tone of the previous verses. Look at what he says here. Verse 11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, three times in this verse, he uses the familial terms. And he's a far cry from what we just saw the last few weeks when he called people sinners, adulteresses, and double-minded. Now, he's back to the intimate reference of brethren and brothers by which he exhorts us as family members to cease and desist this hideous practice. Mind you, James is not relaxing his confrontation of sin, not by any stretch, but he is appealing to us as brothers and sisters and reminding us that when we slander each other, we are speaking against family. And family just doesn't do that. Quite frankly, the implication seems to be that if you and I are engaged in such a practice as a matter of habit, there is serious question as to the legitimacy of our place in the family. Maybe we're not 
I mean, really, can you imagine? Now, picture this with me. This just struck me when I was preparing this. I was just kind of meditating on the verses, and this struck me. Think about this. Can you imagine Jesus meeting us out in the cafe, grabbing a coffee, pulling us aside out of the earshot of everyone else to dish out some morsel of dirt on another ministry leader? Can you imagine Jesus doing that? I can hear him, can't you? Uh, hey, so-and-so, come here a minute. You know, I know Russ said this and that in the message today, but you know what I heard about in this week makes me wonder if I can even trust anything he says. That sounds like something Jesus would do, doesn't it? Not that anybody's doing that about me. I just used myself because I didn't want to put any of your names in there. (laughs) Remember, the whole idea of James's letter here revolves around the idea of what passes as true faith, right? That's That's what he's dealing with in this letter. That's what the last three and a half chapters have been about. And more specifically, in verses 6 and 10 that we just saw, in the last chapter, he has just made the point that humility is, is one of the absolute essential character traits of a person who has received the grace of God. Amen? Real faith produces Christ-like humility, and God is opposed to the proud. Proverbs 6, verses 16 and 19 says, There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, and a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. God hates this stuff. It's what Proverbs just said. There's no stronger term that you could use when it says God hates this. That's pretty strong, isn't it? And when the Bible says God hates something, what does it say when we decide with full knowledge that he hates it to engage in it anyway? Where does that place us? Well, we're about to see because James tells us exactly where it places us. As we just saw, Scripture is replete with descriptions of the destructive, devastating fallout of this sin of slanderous words. Because it destroys friendships, unity, it wounds and scars the soul, sometimes for life. I read one author who found in his study that the Old Testament denounces the offense of slandering God and slandering man more than any other offense in the Old Testament. There are more denunciations of this sin, the sin of defaming the name of God and the name of another person than any other sin. And we don't have to go far to find its first occurrence. Genesis chapter 3. And I'd like you to turn there because I want you to see something. Genesis chapter 3, the first five verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it or touch it or you will die. 
Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. There it is right there. Bingo. Casting question on the character of God. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, now this is true, right? There's an element of truth in this, right? But what is it making God out to look like? He's withholding from you. Something's bad here in this God. He wouldn't let you do this. This is defaming God. They certainly had their eyes opened all right when they ate. They knew good from evil all right when they ate, but they were not like God at all. They did die and ushered death into the world for all of us as well. This slithering sin of slanderous, murderous speech came right from the heart of Satan himself in the very beginning. And Jesus said to the Pharisees that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. Remember that? And here it is, right here in Genesis 3. He lied about God. He lied about God's character, God's nature, and his motives. And he suckered us all in, and it has plagued mankind ever since. And the source of it all was pride, jealousy, and selfish ambition on the serpent's part. The sin of slander is at its root satanic. How's that for serious business? It's satanic. It's of the devil, plain and simple. And do you know what the word devil means in the language of the New Testament? The Greek word is the word diabolos, meaning slanderer. Isn't that interesting? Do you see then why James is so blatant about why it should not come forth from a Christian's mouth? Remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of John as he addressed the unsaved, unregenerate hearts of the Pharisees who were slandering him, his words of truth, and his miraculous works. And John 8, 44 to 50, I'm going I'm to read some of that to you. John, verse, chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus said to the Pharisees these harsh words, you are of your father the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you, believe, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. I think they were a little bit, whoa. Verse 48, here's the slander. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? There it is. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Here's the humility of Christ. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. See, Christ was God. He could have put them in their place, but he didn't seek his glory. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Well, this is an interesting juxtaposition if you take John chapter 8 that I just read and put it next to Genesis 3. And I never saw this before until I was reading these two this week. Here is Christ, right? This is the reversal of what Satan perpetrated in the garden. See if you could track with me. Christ offers the fruit of life through faith in him, and the Pharisees call it into question. In other words, in the garden, God said, do not eat lest you die. Satan called it into question. Surely you will not die. Jesus offered to the Jews, eat this fruit, eat this bread, right? And you will not die. And the Pharisees called that into question. Surely we all die. Abraham died. You see, God hates this sin of slander. And so does James. In effect, he says it has no place in the family of God. So to make his sentiment memorable, I've put the, the whole idea of what James says in these two verses into the form of a tongue twister. And I want you to say it along with me after I say it first. And here it is. The slithering sin of slanderous speech should have no seat among the siblings of God. All right? Say it with me. The slithering sin of slanderous speech should have no seat among the siblings of God. Say that five times fast. It's a tongue twister, all right, and that's exactly what James is getting at. Christians need to stop their slanderous speech because it's not just your twisted tongue that gets exposed, but the twisted heart and soul behind it. Speaking against each other does four things according to this text. Number one, it violates God's prohibition against slander. Verse 11, James 4, do not speak against one another, brethren. Speaking against, the word here, I never do this, but I'm going to do it today. Here's the Greek word for speaking against. Katalaleo. Can you say katalaleo, okay? Can denote all kinds of harmful speech, but usually this word is applied to harsh words spoken about a person who is often absent from the conversation. Now, I tell you that word for a reason. You're going to see why in a minute. Numerous examples are apparent in the scriptures of this actual word and this practice. Now, in the Old Testament, it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that used this word. Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses. And she ended up becoming a leper because of it. But God vindicated Moses. The people of Israel spoke against God by complaining about their conditions in the wilderness in Numbers 21. The psalmist says that a wicked person will speak against his brother, slandering him with lies, Psalm 50, verse 20. Job's friends, what did they do to him? They spoke against him, it says, insulting him and crushing him with their words in Job 19. Peter talks about the fact that unbelievers speak against Christians, slandering them as evildoers falsely. Well, this word is to speak evil or make derogatory remarks about someone when they're not around to defend themselves most often. It's to defame people. And the tense of the word that James uses here indicates that this was something that was ongoing, maybe as a result of all the quarrels that they were having that we saw last time, a few times ago. Slander usually proceeds from that kind of unrest, doesn't it? 
I mean, really, it's not enough to disagree with someone, but if you disagree vehemently enough, then you have to personally slam them. Socrates once said this. He said, when the debate is lost, slander becomes the tool of the loser. Just look at the smear campaigns involved in the media and politics on any level, global, national, local, or ecclesiastical. Slander is the new pornography. Slander is the new pornography, but it's also one of those sins that goes under the radar in churches. It's what Jerry Bridges calls a respectable sin. In other words, we don't see it as bad as other types of sins, such as pornography, for example. But you know what? That's baloney. Pure, unadulterated baloney. You know what this sin sounds like? This is what this sin, it's not always out there accompanied by anger. No, usually it's accompanied by a smile and a hint of pseudo-concern. The maliciousness must be covered to remain respectable. Did you catch the hiss? It goes like this. Well, I'm concerned about so-and-so as a Christian brother and sister or sister. Now, stop me if I'm wrong, but, well, there's a hint right there. Or I don't mean to criticize so-and-so, but. Or, you know, I say this out of love for my sister, but keep it just between us. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it sounds just like the word katalaleo, doesn't it? It's onomatopoetic. Onomatopoetic. As one man said, katalaleo, la, 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 blah, blah, blah. <laughs> James says, stop it. Stop it. Why? Because it reveals something even more hideous. Number two, James says, it exposes our presumption of superiority. Verse 11 again. Do not speak against one another, brethren, because he who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you're a judge, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you are a judge of it. See that where it places you? James says that speaking against someone is equal to judging someone. And speaking not only against a brother or a sister, but you also speak against the law. And if you speak against the law, guess what that puts you as? A judge of the law. Phew, that's pretty heavy. And serious. The word judging here that James is used is not used in the sense of good judgment or, or discerning things. It refers to condemnation. This is not honest evaluation that James is talking about here. This is a condemning attitude. It's ultimately passing sentence upon someone. In other words, you've decided, you've passed judgment, you have slandered someone and basically condemned them. And most often that decision involves the ears of another person, but not the one in question. 
You all understand what kind of speech I'm referring to, don't you? We all know it because we've all done it at some time or another. And some people make a career of it. Heard about a guy who came to a pastor one time. He says, I don't have but one talent, pastor. The pastor said, what's your talent? The man said, I have the gift of criticism. The pastor was biblically sharp as a tack and immediately remembered the parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 25. And he said, you know what? The guy who had only one talent went out and buried it. Maybe that's what you ought to do with yours. Yeah, I think James would agree. You see, there is a correct kind of judging that we are called to in Scripture. Jesus said that we are to judge with righteous judgment in John 7, 24, and not by appearance. Paul calls us to judge correctly in terms of sinful behavior within the church. However, we are not to sit in judgment of those outside the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as a matter of fact, talks about that. There's all kinds of sin going on in this Corinthians church, specifically the sin of incest, where a man had his own father's wife, and they had not mourned over it. They had not addressed it. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Clean out the old leaven. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world, right? But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, and that word reviler means slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler, or even eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges? Remove that wicked man from among yourselves. So James is not talking about the right kind of judging here. Romans chapter, I mean, um, but we are to be very careful. Very careful that we do not cross the line into, from accurate discernment into hateful condemnation of somebody. And that's what James is referring to here. The kind of judgment that, Matthew, uh, that um, Jesus warned us about in Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? In other words, take the toothpick out of your eye before you try to remove the, I mean, take the telephone pole out of your eye before you try to remove the toothpick from your brother's. You hypocrite in verse 5. Take that log out, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brothers. What's he saying? He's saying basically what Paul said in Romans chapter two. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. That's Romans 2.1. In other words, anyone who knows God's standards well enough to judge another by them 
also knows them well enough to be judged by them, right? We can examine. We can exhort each other. We can admonish each other. We can speak the truth to each other in gentleness and in love. We can practice tough love. We should practice church discipline, as Matthew 18 instructs us, in the spirit of grace and truth with a view to restoration. But we dare not play God. I ran across this this week. Interesting angle. A lot of people think, okay, there's the word slander. Well, James is saying don't tell lies about people. That's what you're thinking probably, right? No, there's another Greek word for a lie. It's not the word that James is using. Of course, you're not supposed to tell lies about each other. You know that. What James is saying is you can tell something that is absolutely true, absolutely accurate, and still be slandering and judging someone with it. James is not talking about telling falsehoods. He's forbidding using the truth in a certain way. Being a Christian in your communication entails more than just telling the truth. What is your purpose in telling the truth? How are you using the truth in that conversation, says Tim Keller? Slander and judging is telling the truth to punish someone rather than to redeem them. Slander and judging is to speak from a morally superior position, to talk down, to belittle people. And Jesus says, when you are able to assume any position of moral superiority, to condemn people, to write them off, to give up on them, to demonize them, that, Jesus says, is the seed of murder. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? He's saying slander is not a subheading under lying. Slander is a subheading under murder. That brings a little more serious into it, seriousness, doesn't it? See, pronouncing ultimate judgment is God's prerogative alone. He is the only one that has all the facts, the only one who is without fault, the only one who knows the deepest motives of people's hearts. You and I don't know that. So when we speak slanderous words against each other, we judge each other and we put ourselves in the superior position. But James says when we do that, we not only judge each other, but in essence, we judge the law and we cease from doing it. We crawl up onto the judge's bench and we slam the gavel down on everyone else, charging them with guilt, yet we ourselves do not practice that very law that we are imposing. When you judge the law, says the NIV, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment upon it. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether or not it applies to you. That's the way the NLT puts it. New Living Translation. And everybody's asking, what law? Is this the law of the Moses, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament precepts? What law is James referring to? Well, I think it's pretty easy to figure out in this book that James is referring to the perfect law, the perfect law of liberty or the royal law, which he spoke of in chapters 1 and chapter 2. He's talking about the law of love. The law for God, the love for God supremely that we have with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the love for our neighbor as ourselves. That is, in fact, the whole law in summary according 
to Jesus. In Matthew 22, in verse 40, Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the Apostle Paul echoed that truth in Romans 13, 8, when he said, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So someone has correctly observed a breach of love is a breach of law. A violation of love is a violation of law. So when we speak against our brother and become his judge, we basically say that the law doesn't apply to me. That law of yours, God, to love you with all my heart and soul, mind, and strength, that law that you gave to love your neighbor as yourself, well, it doesn't apply to me because when I slander my brother, I am not loving them. And when that happens, James says, we cease being a doer of the law, but a judge of it, and we thereby place ourselves above it. We're not just placing ourselves above our brother, we're placing ourselves above the law. John MacArthur put it like this, the fact that such a sin violates law is the sinner, in effect, saying, I am superior to the law. Do you get that? That's what the sinner says. That's why every sin is a sin of pride, because what you're saying, in effect, is I know what God said, but this is what I'm saying. That's what the sinner says. Maybe not consciously, but ultimately, that's what we do, isn't it? When we sin... We say, I know what God says, but I'm not subject to God's law because I have a higher law. It's my law. It's what I want. And I I know God said don't do it, but I'm doing it anyway. You have a higher law than the law of God. Imaginable, imaginable, imagine the reality here. The one who disregards the law of God in his behavior is himself affirming that he is above it. That he doesn't have to be bound by it. That he's living on a plane higher than the law of God and not subject to it. Folks, will you get that in your mind that that's what sin is? That's what slander is. It's not some little slip over here in the corner without major implication. Sin is in effect saying I'm superior to the law of God. Don't you see the clear picture of Satan's involvement in this? That slithering, slanderous snake. He doesn't stop at calling God's character into question. He wants to be God. Pride, superiority, serpent supremacy. That's precisely why slandering each other is such a serious sin, according to James. The slithering sin of slanderous speech should have no seat among the siblings of God. Speaking against each other, my friends, is not only violating God's prohibition against slander, but it exposes our presumption of superiority over our brother, over the law, but ultimately, it's over God himself. And that's frightening, isn't it? And that's the third thing that James says. It usurps God's prerogative of sovereignty. Look at verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. See, the rabbis taught that judging our neighbor logically leads to the graver sin of judging God. Rabbi Asi declared that the man who begins by disavowing his neighbor 
will end by denying God. Satan said it, I will be like God. I will be like the Most High. Five times he is said to have declared, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. As he sought the place of supremacy. And that's been the essence of every sin ever since. Someone's alluded to the fact that any sin is the same kind of I will, I will, I will. We've usurped the role of judge. That's what James says here. And it's striking a murderous blow at God himself. Someone called it deicide. I never heard that before. Sin strikes a murderous blow at God himself and at its core, it would be, de- it would be deicide. The killing of God, all sin actually says in effect, I want God dead and I want to be in charge. That lends a whole new picture of what that is, doesn't it? It's an incredibly heavy thought. Wow. I know, you're sitting there. I can see it in your faces. You're sitting there and you're going, all of that you say from slandering your brother? I mean, really, James has a flair for the dramatic, doesn't he? No. On the contrary. James has a heart for the church. And he has a heart for the truth. He has a handle on the truth. Verse 12 doesn't need a whole lot of explanation and unpacking, does it? The truth is quite clear as the prophet Isaiah testified centuries before James in Isaiah 3 in verse 22. um, I'm sorry, I think it's 33. I might have that reference wrong. But for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. There is one lawgiver. Who? There is one judge, only one. Who? And he is the only one who is able to both save and destroy. That's what James just said. And other scriptures say it. In his hands alone lies the power of eternal life and eternal death. Save or destroy. Save or destroy. I am so thankful that he is more bent on saving me and saving you than destroying us. I'll cast my lot with God any day. Why? Because of what John 3, 16 through 19 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But go on. I did this a few weeks ago. I'll do it again. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. Save or destroy, save or destroy. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. You know what? I've come to realize in my short life that I would rather take my chances before God in the face of all my sinfulness than some people. Because God's going to be gracious. He's just. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's forgiving. He is love. And many people who ought to know better, even in the church, sometimes especially in the church, are hardly so. Some people can find a manure pile in any meadow. 
William Barclay said it like this, it is a reckless man, a reckless man who deliberately infringes on the prerogatives of God. Reckless. I'll never forget when I was a young pastor, just a few years into the ministry, I received a call from another older, wiser pastor. A couple had begun coming to our church, which had been part of his church for some years and had been quite involved in the ministry there. And as often happens, pastors confer, and that's okay, that's fine. It's mutual respect for each other. It began quite innocently with him asking about the couple and how they were doing. But as the conversation went on, he seemed to get more and more agitated. And then he began to berate and defame the woman in that relationship viciously. I I was stunned. I'm sitting on the, I mean, I'm just like a couple years into the ministry and I'm like, what did I get myself into? In my young naivete, I could not believe what I was hearing from a shepherd of the sheep. I could literally detect the familiar hissing sound of slander. And in my youthful zeal, I called him into question on it regarding his tirade against this woman who was not there to defend herself. The conversation abruptly ended and I sat back in my chair absolutely appalled and the respect that I had afforded this man as an elder and as a pastor was absolutely shot. It was completely gone. And I need to confess to you that through the years, it has been difficult at best for me to look at him whenever we're in events together without a tinge of distrust and disgust. You see, the slithering sin of slanderous speech should have no seed among the siblings of God. And I also need to confess that I realize that I said some things before that need forgiving. We all need to come to that place. And so James wraps this up in verse 12. Because when we speak against each other, it warrants all those things that I said, all these other points that I said, but this one, really, it warrants James's preposterous conclusion. Verse 12 at the end of the verse. And you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Quite bluntly, James ends it with force. Who in the world are you? Who in the world are you to pronounce judgment on your neighbor? It's preposterous that you would put yourself in that position. Who died and made you boss? That's what James is saying. Actually, it's me more than that. He's saying, who died and made you God? Wouldn't that be a great answer to people who began to slander someone in our hearing? 
Wouldn't that be the piece de resistance to shut people up when they're talking to you and they just cross the line into the defamation of a brother or a sister? If we just stopped right there and said those words, who are you? And then, you know, continuing on with, as far as the east is from the west, buddy, as far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103. So just zip it. But we don't do that, do we? We ought to do that. Take the lead of David, Psalm 101, verse 5, where he says, whoever slanders their neighbor in secret... I will put to silence whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart. I will not tolerate. And that begins with ourselves. First, we stop tolerating it with ourselves. And then when other people do it. James chapter 5 verse 9 says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Just whenever that's happening, whenever you're tempted to say something of a slanderous nature, whenever you're listening to someone saying something of a slanderous nature, just picture Jesus being standing right there in that conversation with you because he is. Derek Prime said it this way. He said, the knowledge of our failings make us, makes us more and more hesitant about expressing any form of criticism of others. The man who knows himself learns an increasing silence before other people's faults. But let this be our prayer today. Acquit me of hidden faults, Lord, Father, God. Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen.